Hi, this is Jen Saki. For this week's episode of Diplopod, I spoke with Evan Osnos of The New Yorker about the U.S. midterm elections and what the impact will be on U.S. foreign policy moving forward, how it will impact President Trump's decision-making on foreign policy, and what it will mean for 2020 and the U.S. elections in two years. Well, Evan, thanks so much for joining us and for allowing me to give you a call this morning to pick your, pick your brain about what just happened and how it will impact U.S. foreign policy. And I'll say from the outset that there's a lot of analysis going on here in the United States and around the world, but we wanted to kind of dive into that one particular um, aspect um, from here. So let me start with the big question. Is there an impact from the outcome of the U.S. election uh, where Democrats uh, won back the House of Representatives, but Republicans picked up a number of seats in the Senate. Does that matter? How will it impact things and how Trump or Congress approaches uh, foreign policy issues? I think it will matter um, because, look, we, we know that the president, by nature of the office and the, and the rules that empower uh, the executive branch, does have an extraordinary level of control over foreign policy. But the reality is, is that the political atmosphere in which he's operating has changed in a meaningful way. I don't think he's dramatically weakened by losing the House. But let's establish first what hasn't changed. I think it's, it's important to point out that House Democrats do not have the power to do things like compel the United States to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement right. or to rejoin the Iran deal. Those kinds of things are not in the House's hands. And it's an, House, yeah, it's an important yeah. point because essentially there could be a stalemate with a lot of actual, as people think of traditionally, policy making from Congress. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. You've got a case where you've now got the House in a position to be able to put pressure, uh, to put scrutiny, to um, use the power that it has in its hands to uh, provide oversight. That's, I think, one of the areas in which you're going to see new pressures on the president. So if you take a a relationship, an important foreign policy question like Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. this administration has been, as we all know, has been building a stronger and stronger relationship with Saudi Arabia, even through the controversy and the criticism surrounding the administration's response or lack of response uh, to the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, um, the Saudi journalist, of course, who who died in mm-hmm. the Saudi consulate in Turkey. The um, You may very well see that a set of committees that are now in control, uh, controlled by Democrats, could be calling witnesses. They could be issuing subpoenas. They could be uh, calling for documents to be produced that will shed light on the nature of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia or with Russia. And that can also extend, for instance, to how Democrats think about um, whether or not the United States should be involved in any way in the war in Yemen or in the war in Syria or in the war in Afghanistan. And so on those kinds of things, they really do have power. Yeah, and this is a really important point. So now that Democrats have control of the House, or they will in January, as much as they can't kind of, as you said, you know, bust through major policy, because obviously the president, any president would have to sign that into law, with subpoena power, which they will have for every committee, they can, as you said, request documents, they can pull people into hearings, and they can um, reveal some of the relationships, uh, potentially reveal, I guess, we'll see, that yeah. this administration may have with countries around the world, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, and others, which is kind of an interesting power play. 
Do you think, before we go back to the policy question, you know, you spend a lot of time, you've spent a lot of time uh, in Beijing, you've spent a lot of time around the world. Do you think foreign capitals care? Do you think it matters um, what happens in what happened in the U.S. midterm elections? Is Trump impacted by losing the House or gaining seats in the Senate? Or are we kind of over dramatizing that on this side of the uh, of the ocean? No, I think people do care. And, and, and certainly you've seen this yourself, Jen, that they, there is this desire in the part of foreign diplomats and specialists in U.S. politics to try to make sense of these tea leaves. And it can be very confusing because right now in America, you've got all of these cross currents. So you see on the one hand signs that Democrats, uh, in a sense, sort of rebounded uh, from 2016 to reclaim the House, yet at the same time, uh, Republicans held the Senate. But I do think it matters in a couple of really important ways. Um, the, the truth is that we we had reason to expect that Donald Trump was not going to do particularly well in this election because, as people have heard many times, presidents tend to lose seats. President's party tends to lose seats in a midterm election. Yes, if you I look can at, attest to that, Evan. <laughs> right, exactly. And actually, I mean, the truth is that Donald Trump lost only about half as many seats as Barack Obama did in his first midterm election or Bill Clinton in their first term. So by that in part because of gerrymandering, which is a different podcast topic. But the reason but the reason why I mention this, I think, is that um, the tendency is to want to read what happened uh, in the midterms as a preview of what could happen in 2020. Mm -hmm. And that is premature. I think there are just there, it, the evidence is pretty clear that midterm elections are not a great predictor of what happens in a re-election. And just to take one example, Ronald Reagan in 1982, um, his party lost something like 26 House seats. But then two years later, Reagan went ahead and, right. and, and had a resounding re-election. And then you saw the same thing with Clinton and indeed the same thing with Obama in 2010, who had a, a very harsh loss, 63 seats, but then, of course, uh, went on to beat Mitt Romney. So you can't take midterms as a predictor, but what you can do is begin to say, how is the presidency now in a different posture? How is it constrained? How is it distracted? How is it troubled? And then that may uh, begin to shape the environment for the things that really do matter for re-election, like the economy and, of course, Trump's own behavior, which is a big deal. Um, and then the big one is the outcome of the Mueller investigation, which yeah. we, we don't know on. yet, although reports this morning, it may come soon. But who knows? And how do right. we know that those people know? So, right. I, you know, I think there are some interesting um kind of messages that were run on. And I'm not going to focus on health care, given how domestic that is. But yeah, um, that. You know, I'm not asking you to get into President Trump's head, which just seems like a hard thing to do. But I think a <laughs> I've, question I've tried. <laughs> I've and tried. I succeeded yes, well. you have reported a lot on Trump's America, which I <laughs> want to get to. But um, you know, he had a press conference yesterday. He's been tweeting um, some of the closing messages that he ran with and that many Republicans ran with successfully. I think I would say, but I'd be interested in your thought. Were anti-immigration. Um, right. You know, some. I don't know that he ran anti-China, but he has been upping kind of the um, rhetoric on China and obviously putting into place more um, actions as it relates to uh, consequences for China. What do you think the lessons are he learned? I mean, as we're looking to what he takes away from the midterms, should we expect, should people expect he's going to go further anti-immigrant, he's going to go further anti-China, or what's your take on that? I think the answer is yes, he is likely to double down, as we say, on the anti-immigrant 
message. Um, and I, I, I want to announce here, look, this pains me to say this, because I think for people who believe that that's a toxic element of American politics right now, not healthy for the United States, not healthy internally or for our image around the world, it did work for him politically. You saw that in the places where he needed to win in, in order to hold on to the Senate, he did. And, and I think overall what we see coming out of the midterms is that in places where the country was red, he was able to make it redder. He was able yeah. to tap into these underlying um, fears and anxieties and, um, and benefited from them politically. So the places where he was rejected are places that were inclined to reject that message. But the same principles that helped him in 2016 are in place in 2018 and indeed may well be in place in 2020. And, you know, I think the the fact is that fear politics today are raging. They mm -hmm. are still functioning. In fact, they're even more pronounced than they were a few years ago. And at the center of that is the way in which he has cultivated a sense of fear around outsiders, around refugees or around immigrants. And the way that he used the what he held forward as the caravan that was coming up towards the southern border, that became the centerpiece of his final election message. He defied the advice of other Republicans who said this is not a wise move. You should be running on the strength of the economy. Um, but Donald Trump, as we all know by now, takes his own counsel, and he believed that using the kind of techniques, the sort of fear-mongering that he used in 2016, um, it worked for him. And I think you're likely to see that again. I, to talk about China for just a second, yeah. I think China is a bit of a mixed picture. Yeah. Um, in the past, you've seen Democrats and Republicans use trade with China as an issue around elections. It's never been especially effective. If you look at, at the data, um, people don't tend to vote on their on their views about China policy. But what he has done is that he has linked this. Uh, sort of tied it umbilically to the questions of work, dignity, the future of work. Um, and he has said that unfairness, the, exactly. yeah, community. Exactly. Yeah. So he's almost made China trade a domestic issue. And insofar as he's done that uh, and he believes that it's helped him politically, I, I don't I don't see him backing away from that. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think as we look to um the, the the midterm election I mean I'm sorry the 2020 re-election campaign I should say for people who don't track this as closely as you and I have watched it starts now or it already has started um, and so um, the reason we're talking about this is because um, there'll be a number of Democratic candidates who start announcing in the coming weeks um, yeah and you know and President Trump has already started raising money for his re-election and he's already thinking about I would guess as much as I can't get into his head yet how he's going to run um, in 2020 and what lessons he will take from November and, of course, from when he won um, the last time. So as it relates to kind of President Trump's own power, as you said at the beginning, you know, the president has a lot of power as it relates to foreign policy. So does Congress. What do you think he will do or what should if you're sitting in a foreign capital or you're sitting, um, you know, in another part of the world, um, what what should people expect from his actions? I think that uh, there's a temptation now as we get into the process of 2020, which is sort of mind-boggling for yeah, all of us gosh. who have spent the last few months trying to grapple Can't with Can't we at least have Christmas music, <laughs> movies or Thanksgiving or I whatever know. everybody celebrates? It would, I think there Monica. should be a resolution. I know. <laughs> um, but I think there's going to begin to be a sense that people are going to say as – 
dramatic and turbulent as the Trump administration has been for American foreign policy. Uh, it's now past the midpoint of the first term. And is it possible that they can wait it out? Is it possible that in some of the ways that you've seen other countries respond, um, that they may be able to uh, kind of uh, work around the United States. To give you an example, the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership mm -hmm. very early on. It was his first week in office. And the expectation at the time was that the other countries in the TPP um, would throw up their hands and say, well, now this is over. And of course, that's not what's happened. Right. The TPP has sort of despite the odds, has managed to continue on and is, and is sort of trying to forge some, um, some future. And you see versions of that happening in other areas. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, and I've often thought about this, Jenna, as being the long-term consequence of the Trump presidency, is that in some ways it's, it has given the rest of the world the occasion to, to figure out what it's like to live without the United States. And yeah. that is a profound change um, from the, everything that has organized the international order since World War II. So I think you're going to see foreign capitals trying to do, number one, um, figure out how they can spend the next two years without losing ground, and number two, um, trying to figure out who is rising in democratic politics who may represent a different set of values and ideas about America's role in the world. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting. I mean, you've covered a lot of, uh, obviously, international events and international forum. I've attended a lot, and it's such a change. And people have different views on that in the United States, to be totally fair. But usually the United States is driving the agenda, is writing the policy, is getting people on board for things. There wouldn't be a Paris Climate Change Agreement without the United States. There wouldn't be an Iran deal. And there are countless other examples. And kind of just to, to further um, explain what you were saying, right now we're just not driving the agenda and yeah. other countries are working around us. That has implications. Um, and you know, people in the United States obviously have a variety of views on that. So I wanted to ask you about – your time, you've, you've covered, obviously, a number of global events and spent a lot of time in China, as I said. But you've also been kind of reporting on or, you know, writing about Trump's America or you're thinking yeah. about that. What what should people know that is being that is the perception is off globally or, or even on the coast or both about, you know, what is happening in, in terms of the supporters and why they like uh, President Trump so much? I think the thing that's hardest for people to read from far away is the degree to which American politics right now is driven by internal resentments and anxieties. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it can be sort of baffling, I think, for people who are watching this from Sydney or from Brussels to look at the United States and think, why is this a country as vast and as prosperous as the United States? obsessed with a caravan of four or 5,000 migrants mm -hmm. moving from Honduras up into Mexico and towards the United States. How does that manage to captivate? Who's a thousand miles away most of the time? A thousand miles away. And, and how is it that, um, that this has become the, you know, for the final weeks of the campaign really was front page news in a sense on certainly on conservative media. And then it forced mainstream news organizations to have to face a difficult choice. Do they pretend that the president is not talking about the caravan yeah. and do they not cover it or do they cover it and try to 
um, dismantle some of the mythology and 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 the and the and the uh, and the untruths that were being trafficked around it. And and I think it can be really hard to look at that and to see how that makes any sense for the United States. But we are in the midst of a political change that is not just four years or eight years. It's really sort of being conducted on a generational basis. Yeah. I mean, this is about a fundamental change in how the United States looks at itself racially and in class terms. And that's not going to resolve itself before the end of the Trump presidency, whether that's in two years or in six years. We're really talking about a country that is shifting from being historically majority white to being a country that is majority minority. And that's going to happen somewhere around the middle of this century. And for a lot of people, that is a cause of celebration. It's a, a, a demonstration mm -hmm. that this idea, this American idea of a multicultural republic is possible. And there's reasons to celebrate that. And then there are some people for whom this feels like a loss. And I think that sense of loss, which is at the core of Donald Trump's politics, that's not going away. And, um, and, and so this is going to work its way through the American system over the course of not, not a few years, I'm afraid, but really over the course of decades. And, and we have to contend with that. Yeah, that's a really important point in terms of understanding what's happening um, in our country right now. I mean, if you look at, I mean, my takeaway, and I'd be very interested in yours, on how the caravan um, messaging and the ad and everything impacted races. I mean, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, which is on the border, of course, yeah. far out, outperformed expectations. Um, right. You would think that that would – I did not, but, you know, you'd think that that would scare people there. It didn't. In Arizona, Kirsten, Kirsten Cinema is probably not going to be a member of the Senate because of the Green Party candidate, not yeah. because people were scared there. But where there probably was an impact was in parts of the country like Indiana, Ohio, you, maybe – uh, where there is a um, population of um, kind of, you know, middle-aged and aging white America where Trump is using the fear tactic to scare, um, mm -hmm. you know, w this caravan coming to get them. Um, and, you know, that's just my take. Obviously, there'll be more analysis on it. But it's yep. not as if the border states were scared of the caravan. It was no. farther away states, which is, tells you something about what's happening in our country. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, I remember one of the first moments that I began to sense this phenomenon that you just described so rightly is was back in 2015. I mean, this was like just a couple of months after Trump had announced his candidacy. And, so, you know, more than a year before the election. And I was traveling around talking to voters. I was in New Hampshire, a long way from the border with Mexico. And I was talking to people and they were talking about how concerned they were about immigration and how it was a threat to their personal safety and how it was a threat to their jobs and so on. And I said, I said, to be frank, this seems crazy to me. We're sitting in New right. Hampshire. And, and what I came to understand was that I think a lot of American politics that used to be transacted locally, I mean, the old line, the famous sort of the central line of American politics was from Tip O'Neill, that all politics is local. But the truth is today, a lot of our politics have become nationalized because so much of how we talk about ourselves in terms of what we care about and what we don't like and what we're afraid of comes through national media outlets mm -hmm. or it's conducted on social media, which is borderless. doesn't matter if you're in Texas or you're in New Hampshire, you can talk about immigration in the same terms. And I think that the sort of strange nationalization of politics um, 
means that these ideas that may not actually have any local relevance for you can take on huge persuasive effect in your politics if they happen to to slot into how you're feeling anxious about yourself as a as a worker or as a as a citizen. You know, there has been a recent drumbeat of um, kind of uh, cutting off access to press and press credentials at the White yeah. House. Um, this is an important point, not because the media in the United States needs defenders, but because this is freedom of press and freedom of speech is an American value um, that, um, you know, is digested in countries around the world. Yeah. What, if any, impact do you think it has if the current White House starts to limit and cut off media access and credentialing of White House reporters if they don't like what they're writing or asking about? I think the effect is actually more pronounced around the world than it is inside the United States. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I mean. I mean, the, the fact is that you can now cover the Trump presidency quite capably without ever setting foot in the White House. That's in fact, true. There's That's a, true. a good argument that you could cover it better. The administration better. Yeah. If yeah. you're not wrapped up in, in some of the complicated dynamics around sources in the administration. Um, I don't want to, that's not to say that I'm in any way sort of undermining the value of that sort of deep um, embedded reporting inside the White House. I'm just saying that there is way, there are ways to do it if you are um, blocked from being a part of the White House press corps. Um, but there's a, the really, I think, lasting effect is that it undermines American credibility in being able to stand as a, a model of a free press. And that's worrisome because you already hear places like Cambodia and uh, in the Philippines where leaders have used um, some Donald Trump's own language about press being enemy of the people as an excuse to um, – as an excuse to constrain and, and in some cases abuse their own local mm -hmm. press. And, and that's, that's worrisome. Um, so I worry more from that perspective. I actually think in as a practitioner, I'm a reporter in Washington. I write a lot about the Trump administration and um, you know, I tend to think that the, the, the decision to try to bar a reporter from, from participating is usually as a sign that the reporter is doing something that's, worth paying attention to. Yeah. Um, that's so, that's the, the healthy dynamic I can say from having been on the yes. other side is if you're fully satisfied with what the White House is doing or the State Department or somebody you're covering, they probably are not, you know, they're not pushing back right. enough. <laughs> they're not probably yeah. doing their jobs. Um, yeah. You know, I think I've thought about this morning, the fact that when I was at the State Department and giving doing the briefing every day, we had representatives from state-run media from many countries around the world, um, not because yeah. we were validating what they were doing, but because we were uh, – it was important to send a message that we are open to and welcoming of any line of questioning um, yeah. as, a, you know, as a value of the United States. So last question before I let you go, and I promise not to put you too much on the spot here, but given yeah. how much you've covered the country and the world, do you think um, – sometimes – People, I hear people say um, there's no way Trump can be reelected. Uh, to put my cards on the table, I think that's yeah. wrong. Um, I think he very yeah. much could be reelected and probably would be if the election were held today. Yeah. What is your view and why? I agree with you. I think it's a, a huge mistake to assume that uh, Donald Trump can't be reelected. It's 
it can be incomprehensible to people who look at the United States and say, how is it this country that we think of as being confident and cosmopolitan and a steward of international organizations could once again rally around somebody who is so at odds with those values. But that really overlooks the drivers that shape our politics right now. And those drivers have very little to do with the things I just mentioned. They have much more to do with people's sense of anxiety and a sense that the country is changing and they're unsure what to to do about that. And he has proven to be a master of the technology of our time. I don't mean literal technology, just, you know, social media. I also right. mean the nature of our kind of entertainment and information ecosystem and the way in which ideas are transmitted. And um the biggest mistake that I think Americans and America watchers, diplomats and analysts around the world made in 2016 was to was to underestimate Donald Trump. And the reality is that he has political power. And so he may well be reelected in 2020. And I think I will add, though, and I think this is worth mentioning, that what the 2018 midterm shows us is encouraging. It shows us that the ability to marshal energy around opposition to policies that people find repellent um, works. Mm-hmm. There was high turnout in this election. You know, record many turnout. More yeah, record turnout. People who in the past would have said, "I don't need to participate in politics," suddenly were reminded that they have this incredibly powerful instrument in their hands, and they used it. And they did send a message, not only to Trump, but I think also around the world. So that is, you know, the the, the central enduring line about American politics remains true today, which is we have this power to shape our own path. And, and, and we should not assume that just the disposition of how things are today means how they will be in four or six years from now. That's true. And, and I will just say, just to end on an optimistic note, I mean, there is a benefit to the Democratic Party have a, having a primary process because yeah. oftentimes people emerge from that who are tested through it, who rise from it, who exceed expectations, who can become the next leaders. That's true of either side of Absolutely. either party. Um, and, you know, there'll be several dozen candidates running, if I were to guess. Um, right. So that will be where a lot of the political action is on this uh, on this end uh, for the coming year. Uh, well, Evan, thank you so much for letting us pick your brain. We really appreciate it. Um, and um, we'll look forward to talking to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Jen, for having me. We want to hear your questions about foreign policy and what topics you want to hear us talk about. You can talk to us on Twitter using hashtag Diplopod or email us at diplopod at ceip.org. That's D-I-P-L-O-P-O-D at C-E-I-P dot org. You can also call us at 202-939-2247. Leave us a voicemail and we might use your question on a future episode. And don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jen Saki. Thanks for listening.